Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Dad Bod History. Um, as you know, this month, we're going to go over Black History Month. And this particular week, we're here to talk about athletes and musicians that were impactful to our culture. Um, but before we get into that, I want to definitely point out the fact that I will be drinking wine tonight. It happens to be Valentine's Day. And shout out to each of the ladies in our lives for allowing us to do this. Um, you know, I, I don't know about the everybody else, but my wife has always thought that Valentine's Day is kind of kind of corny. So you know, here we are, and she's happy about it. And it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys do for Valentine's Day? Me and my wife, we uh, in honor of Valentine's Day, we watched The Untouchables. So that's what we mm -hmm. did. Okay. Because the Valentine's Day classic Day massacre. Think yeah. Valentine's Day massacre. Yep. I I do I do like. Did none to of tell... us do anything for Valentine's? Or we no, we did like heart shaped pizzas with the kids or something. Okay, it was fine. Yeah, it was good. I I refuse to participate in emotionally manipulative holidays, so I'm out. How do you feel about Flag Day? <laughs> I love Flag Day. <laughs> I love America. Aren't, I mean, aren't all holidays emotionally <laughs> manipulative? Like, like, on some level, sure. But Valentine's is the most egregious of the emotionally manipulative holidays. I got to buy a box of candies or a card to show my affection. I, I'm, I'm not doing it. And then if I don't do it right, I got to feel bad. I'm, I'm out. I'm completely out on Valentine's Day. It's been that way for quite some somewhere. time. After Thank I graduated you. college. Uh, the first job I had before I started teaching was I worked at a Walgreens and my first week was Valentine's day. <clears throat> and let me tell you the saddest group of people in the world are the men shopping for gifts at Walgreens at 5 PM on Valentine's day. It's just <laughs> a sad lot. Because those men have been emotionally manipulated into spending. I need your $12 gift for valentine's day please yeah something that, as, that says i see the same I thing spent, at christmas and yeah as a father i'm emotionally manipulated to buy my kids gifts for christmas but i, still I love playing it. with the legos that i get for my boys but christmas is for retailers and children in that order that's this is like, <laughs> we're getting way off the railers here where rails here <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, first and foremost, we, we need to cover Valentine's Day because, you know, it's important. And, and but, but no, keep we're in here mind, St. Valentine was executed, beheaded, I believe, for his crimes against the empire. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, so hey, it's got a long and bloody history. And so I think it's worth celebrating properly. Do you feel that we are currently celebrating it properly, Eric? By podcasting? Yes. No, no. By no. giving each other little mints that say, be mine. Oh, actually, those ones taste pretty good. So I like those. Yeah. I may grab a bunch of cheap ones tomorrow. So. Yeah. And right. um, 
you know, since I'm big on the, the dad and husband hacks, um, you know, last week, my tip of the week was, you know, buy a diamond, get a gun for free. Genius. Um, back, I thought it was buy a gun, get a diamond. It doesn't matter. You buy one, you get the other. No, yeah, it does matter. Here's a package. I'm sorry. Well, it is, it, it matters what you tell your diamond? wife. That's true. The presentation is key there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But your, your tip of the week this week is, you know, I've always kept a close eye on what flowers cost day of and day before Valentine's Day and then awesome. day after. So just as a way of, of you know. Do you have that on your Robinhood app? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this Watching is this the, is like the, a, a GameStop the, short squeeze going on here. Exactly. The Roses on Monday. <laughs> I may not know how to make you a fifty thousand in in a week, but I can I can save you twenty bucks in twenty four hours. So hey. almost as good. You could do that three hundred sixty five times a year. It's like seven grand. It adds up. It adds up. I mean, what does Dave Ramsey say? A little bit at a time, right? Baby steps. Yeah, that's, that's why that's why it appeals to me so much. So um, no, let's let's talk about tales from the dad front. What do you guys got late lately in the last week that we need to hear about? I got snow. I'm in East Texas right now, and it started snowing hard tonight. There's already two mm -hmm. inches of accumulation. Tomorrow's overnight low is zero, which to those of you from Wisconsin and other horrible places, that doesn't sound like much, <laughs> but Around here, this we're just not cut out for that. I was mentioning earlier, there's literally eight counties share one snowplow and one sand truck, and it is not getting the job done. You know, they are only there, have to use it once every, every are there four long or five horns, years. Like showing up at your patio, like knocking on your door, being like, let us in. This is ridiculous. Um, the chickens are, they seem to be completely unaffected, so... Except I went out there the other day, and I mean, of course, all their water's frozen, so now I got to bring them water twice a day and set it in the coop, and they've got little space heaters in the chicken coop, and my, my mother is extremely concerned about the chickens. I literally get two phone calls a day asking if the chickens are okay. <laughs> that's awesome, and I see that that fire must not just be for show. I mean, that's, although you might want to put another log on that thing, given that it's well, zero well, degrees outside. Okay, well, you guys are talking, I'll do that. If, or if it starts getting low, you guys let me know. Yeah. If I get cold. Yeah, if I get cold. <laughs> Did you get, yeah. <laughs> so get snow chilly. in East Texas, that's the second time in like the last month, no? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the three years prior to this, zero snow. So, hmm. but but even more unique than the snow is the, the zero degrees. I mean, it just like usually if it's going to get like just a few degrees below freezing, it's on the news and it's cover your roses and your azaleas and all that stuff. But zero, it's just like they're literally closing schools just because it's getting down to zero and it's snowing three inches. Yeah. That is well, you awesome. come up with any reason to close a school these days. Oh, yeah. Come on. You, you teach at a parochial school. Let's talk about coming up with any, and all, any reason to close school. Oh. <laughs> uh, we're the one school open in the county right now, but. St. Patrick's Day, Yom Kippur, you guys, it's everything, right? <laughs> I remember those Rosh Hashanah celebrations we had. <laughs> they were, they were really great. Yeah. They were really so. But we did, we did take a week off for Thanksgiving, which I We loved. didn't take a fall break. 
Everyone else took a fall break. We didn't take one. We're like, no, sorry, October. You're getting all of us. No, that's an exclusive Arizona thing in the last like 10 years or so. I feel like we taking a week off for, for Thanksgiving was awesome. Don't get me wrong. I loved it, but that was a, a new thing in my educational life. It seems to be the way it's always been for me, but I think the schools I was at also participated in those conferences early on in the week. Sure. But hmm. True. So what else, guys? Tales from the dad front, aside from the, I, the snow and, and Jeff's world. I did a, a nerf battle with my son today. He insisted. Did you win? He said, let's go play Fortnite, which he hasn't played. Uh, but he hears about it. He's like, let's go play Fortnite with the Nerf guns and run around the backyard and shoot each other. I'm like, all right, this will be fun. So we did. And it was a blast because I have really good aim. And <laughs> you're a man. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, the three-year-old is standing on the rock barefoot with the largest of our Nerf guns. And it looks great, but he can't do anything with it. And then uh, my middle one, my oldest son, <clears throat> He's running around with his, but this is the best part is he shot at me like six times and I shot at him easily a hundred times because once he got into it, he started to make up rules. Like, you know, if you, you get 10 lives, if you get hit 10 times and you got to go sit for a minute, I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, if the gun gets hit twice, you got to set it down for 10 seconds. He, he spent more time like reciting the Geneva convention to me than actually shooting at me <laughs> sounds eerily reminiscent of his dad with dream yeah i was i was thinking rules. there's a like father like son yeah but i i, going I had i'm like though there are no rules i'm just every chance i get i'm shooting you <laughs> but anyways yes i it was it was just like come on let's just play this it's like wait wait hold on hold on hold on i no, we got it we got hold on hold, no you can't wait for me to just, sorry can't wait that long yeah, it's it's sink or swim. You know, it's shot or be shot when you, when you're playing with Eric. He got shot a lot. Nice way to teach him a lesson. So I, you know, last week I told you guys that um, we got a new trampoline, um, yes. a la Eric, and I was pretty proud of myself. Pretty impressed with, you know, the moves that I was doing on the trampoline. The kids were like, "Wow, Dad, that was really good." You know, truth be told. It was just a simple flip, but, you know, I, I was pretty pleased with myself that I could do that, landed it nicely. The kids said, ooh, and yeah, that pretty much was the highlight of my week. It's a risky just, move for a dad to throw a flip on a trampoline. Right. That can really get away from you. It can. It my can. Kids are Congratulations for sticking body that. slamming awesome. each other on ours. Like, they aren't jumping. They're just, like, throwing each other down. <laughs> yeah, but, but would you do a flip? I don't know that ours is rated for my weight. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, make sure to read the safety precautions. Yeah. Let's, let's give Cameron a little credit. Uh, him being far and away the tallest person in our group. He's got to tuck. Like you got to, you got to keep it. That's got to be a tight flip or legs will go Wait, no, and, I, and bad I, things will happen. Right. My mental hey. image of this flip is you remain fully extended and it's very fluid and <laughs> like you're going up and like, ah, like and a bunch of doves fly shot. in the background yeah. and it's a John Woo flip. Explodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A John Woo flip. Nice. Degree of yeah. difficulty 
when your six nine goes goes up. So you know it's it's pretty much the same as like a triple backflip. No, I I agree because yeah. I couldn't do a flip on my best day ever. So the fact that you did it, I think is awesome. Yeah, and weirdly, my wife was a lot less impressed than the kids were. So well, I, not I sure. I don't mean to be this guy, but she's wrong. Uh, Thank you. Just throwing that out there. She should be way more impressed. Thank you. Um, yeah. Now she's going to have to listen to this episode. <laughs> awesome. Uh, give it a 10. Good job, Cameron. <laughs> yes. I got a couple short ones. Um, first one is, and I forgot to mention this last week. So I was getting the kids dinner ready. Um, and I reached to grab a string cheese. And when I did, I knocked over an open glass of chocolate milk that was sitting on the top shelf of our fridge. And it poured down the side, mm. all the way down to the bottom. And so I'm like cleaning, like taking everything out, cleaning all the shelves. And I get to the last one and I'm like, I can't get to this spot. So I'm like, well, I'll pull the whole shelf out. And as I do, the glass falls out of it and just explodes all over our kitchen floor. And my wife comes in and she's like, what happened? I'm like, well, the glass fell out. And she goes, why did you do that? And I go, I don't know why I did this. Like, <laughs> I was like it's not like I'm like, uh, I was so distraught. She goes, no, nope, never mind. I'll just go get the broom. Like, thank you. Like, I was like apoplectic. I was I'm like, I don't know what to do. So moral of the story is I got to go buy a new shelf for the bottom shelf of our fridge. I was just going to ask that, like, you go to Home Depot and buy a bottom shelf? Like, where, I don't, I don't know where to go? I don't know. I'm going to just start looking up Kenmore and shelves and see what happens and go mm. from there. Glenmore. Glenmore. Right. Got to be right. careful with that. Careful. But if it's anything like most of my finding replacement part stories, uh, I might end up buying a new fridge in two weeks, guys. So just <laughs> FYI. I couldn't find the shelf, but we got a new fridge. So, so sign up yeah, on our Patreon hey. and help Jake uh, get a new fridge. Apparently, <laughs> I'm I'm the king of spending a thousand dollars to save two hundred. I'm right there yeah. with you. I've done that a yeah. hundred times. That's 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 dad bod. Yeah, it's in our DNA. A, I think it's going to cost what to replace the tires on this car. Hmm. But I can buy a new one for zero down. Okay. Let's talk. <laughs> 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 let's uh let's uh let's figure something out mister um, See, on my end it works more like this like somebody wants to charge me 80 dollars to take all the branches and stumps out of my yard but i'm like no i can take it to the dump for free with my electric bill and as i'm yeah. throwing them into the back of my truck i throw one through the back window yeah. seeing myself <laughs> 200 dollars and all the time that's that's how it works in my yeah. world so <laughs> So if I, viewers, if I ever give you a dad hack, don't listen to me because it'll end up costing you way more. Listen to Cameron and uh, <laughs> you'll save some money. Um, yeah, oh, don't listen at your own risk. Yeah. All of yep. these. Buyer beware. Um, oh, and I got one more. Um, so my daughter, the other day, they were downstairs playing with this little remote control car that they got for Christmas from their grandpa. And it's one of those ones where like, if it flips over, it can still keep going. It's, I don't know, reversible or however you want to put it. So that's the most fun because you can just send it down the stairs at top speed and it'll just tumble over and then just keep going. Um, so the kids are downstairs playing in the playroom. And then my daughter comes up 
and we can tell right away as she's coming up, oh, something not great has happened. And she opens the door and the car is stuck in her hair. Like she's got it, her <laughs> hair wrapped around one of the wheels. And she's like distressed, not like crying, but she's clearly upset. And so she's like, what do I do? And I'm like, you're going to mom. Mom's going to fix this. And uh, so my wife is like untangling the hair. My son comes up after her to help her. And he immediately runs into the kitchen and he comes back with a pair of scissors. And he goes, literally, he goes, da, da, da. I'm like, no, <laughs> put it back. <laughs> like, it's like, ha, ha. <laughs> it was hysterical. I thought he was going to show up with the remote control and, and, no, and goose no, it. No, and would it up even more. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. So, da, da, da. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. You'll remember and, that one for a long time. Yeah, suffice it to say, my wife was able to get the car out of her hair with, without incident. But man, he was way too excited to help out with that situation. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like similar to Eric's story last week is, you know, you clearly as a dad know that you're in over your head there. Like, this is above my pay grade. And you call the <laughs> wife because there's yeah. no way that's ending well with you. Yeah, I, I'm not good with knots in the best of circumstances. And mm. luckily, she was able to take care of her pretty quick. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah, guys, um, let's let's get into it and, and start talking about our topic today. Um, I know we batted around a few things um, this week, but um, as we we're going through and saying, hey, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I want to talk about. Jeff kind of blurted out with all this enthusiasm and said, oh, here's my choice. Here's my pick. And I've been on the edge of my seat all week to, to see what he's got for us. Um, I have Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight um, in the United States. Well, there's, of course, there's a dozen asterisks on this. Um, he's generally regarded as being the first uh, – black heavyweight but a small footnote to that you know the the year that he became the first black heavyweight was 1908 but there was a black heavyweight championship open only to black fighters as fighting was segregated he was the the black heavyweight champion in 1903 uh, which he won in a 20 round decision so clearly boxing yeah, beyond all that was way different back then. I mean, if you see pictures of this guy, his boxing gloves look like like the gloves you wear to ride your bike. There is no protection there for the other guy's head. And to go yeah. 20 rounds with anybody wearing those, and I don't know how many times you get punched, but it sounds horrible. Um, he won the Black Heavyweight Championship in 1903 in that 20-round decision, and he was denied a shot at, the, uh, at, at that time heavyweight champ recognized general heavyweight champ uh who is jim jeffries and he was denied that shot because of his race um jack johnson is from texas that's not why i picked him but that's an interesting note uh, his nickname was the galveston giant born in 1878 and died in 1946 at 68 years old um he was the overall championship heavyweight championship of the world from 1908 to 1915 uh, Ken Burns did a great documentary on Jack Johnson. And uh, in that documentary, he said uh, for more than 13 years, Jack Johnson was the most famous and notorious African-American on earth. Um, 
his dominance spawned the search for the great white hope. We've all heard the term great white hope. And uh, I think it's been the name of uh, a couple movies. Um, anyhow, this is during Jim Crow. This is uh, obviously a very difficult time for uh, America racially. And so white America wanted a white heavyweight champion. So uh, their search for the great white hope turned up uh, James Jeffries or Jim Jeffries, who was the former undefeated heavyweight champ. The problem is, uh, the problem for Jeffries, as it turns out, is he had been retired for six years by the time uh, by the time this fight went down. Um, it was the fight of the century, which there have been many fights of the century, but uh, this was the fight of the century at that time. Uh, Johnson dominated the fight uh, and won by a TKO after the other corner threw in the towel after the 15th round. So uh, that was it. That was the fight of the century. Uh, great white hope. Not so much. Um, th there's some interesting lead up to all of this, the timeline between Jack Johnson being the, the black heavyweight champ and then moving into the overall role. So Jeffries won the title in 1899. He retired as the champ in 1904. So he vacated the title. This is before there were four different belts and all that. There was one belt at the time, one recognized heavyweight champion of the world. Um, for the for the vacated title, uh, Marvin Hart defeated Jack Root in 1905. Hart had previously defeated Jack Johnson earlier that year, just a few months prior, in a 20-round decision. So I, I just can't wrap my head around a 20-round decision, first of all. You go toe-to-toe -to -toe the guy for 20 rounds, and then it's just up to the judges, and they pick one. Um, you know, and all things being equal back then, black man versus white man and the decision, did he get a fair shake? I, I couldn't find anything that really talked about that. But anyhow, so uh, Hart defeated Jack Root in 1905 to get the vacated title. Hart lost the title to a man named Tommy Burns, and then Burns lost the title to Jack Johnson in 1908 in Sydney, Australia. Um, I don't have any real information on why they fought in Sydney. Um, there were plenty of fights that happened in the States. So I think that's just where the promoters uh, had the uh, had the fight set up. Uh, Jack Johnson was convicted in 1913, which was during his reign as heavyweight champ of violating the Mann Act. Uh, the Mann Act was an anti-prostitution act. Um, it was almost certainly used against him just because of his race. Uh, Jack Johnson was very brash. Um, if he was supposed to be meek, he didn't get the memo. He was, uh, he was very out in front. He uh, famously dated and married white women. He was very brash with his money. So, um, you know, for, for that time in our country, the man put a target on his back and the Mann Act was used against him. So he was convicted of transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. Uh, ironically, the the woman he was crossing state lines with was his 19-year-old white girlfriend. Um, we've all seen enough movies and know this story to know if that wasn't going to fly back yeah. at the time. Um, he actually ended up marrying her that same year. Um, he was convicted. He fled the country. He jumped bail. And he went to Europe to try to avoid going to prison for all this. Uh, re he returned in 1920. I read somewhere that said that he returned because... Um, he was told that if he returned and defended his title, that they would uh, not make him uh, do his time in prison. But uh, he ended up turning himself in 
and uh, he ended up serving 10 months. So it, it wasn't too bad. Um, easy for me to say, of course. Uh, some facts about Jack Johnson. He died in a car crash at the age of 68 in North Carolina. He was, uh, he was leaving. He had been to a restaurant and they either, the story changes, they either weren't going to serve him because he was black or they were going to make him eat outside because he was black. And uh, he, was, he was upset about that. And he left at a high rate of speed and ended up dying in the, uh, in the accident. He fought as a professional until the age of 60. Um, he was taking different fights for, for money through, uh, through his later years. Um, he was inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame in 1954. And some other things that happened well after he died, uh, the efforts to grant him a pardon really began in 2008. Um, John McCain was a big proponent of this, but couldn't really get anything done. And ultimately, he was pardoned in 2018 by another other than Donald J. Trump. So that uh, sort of wraps up the, the life of Jack Johnson. Um, he was he was a big, bold figure, man. He he embodied a lot of, you know, a, a, a lot of America, uh, irrespective of being black or not. So he was um, he, he was big and bad. I, I think of uh, Ricky Bobby. I'm a big, hairy American winning machine. So. Um, <laughs> I, I don't just think of him as a great black American, but he was probably a, a great American. And um, it's nice to see that uh, there was at least some effort made to set the record straight. But um, mm-hmm. that, 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 that was my choice was Jack Johnson. I've always I've always followed him. I've always liked him. And uh, it was interesting to read up on him. That's a cool story. I, I don't know much about boxing, but the first thing that, that popped into my head as you're talking about that is how many rounds do heavyweight fights go for, like how long are they scheduled for nowadays? Is it twelve? Um, I, I think uh, I think a title bout is fifteen, but I don't know. So, but they never ever ever go that that length of time, you know, outside of Rocky. Right. Well, yeah. Rarely. And and back then, it all depended on the fight. I mean, sometimes they would fight and just until it was over. There there wasn't. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily stop at twenty rounds. I think by the time Johnson was fighting, they had. They had certain limits. I don't know if they had fight commissions at that point, but the, the rules were coming along. It was no longer bare knuckle or any of that. It, mm-hmm. It's funny when you guys, when you were talking about that, Jeff and, and Cam, and you, you brought it up again and, and boxing. I, I, when you talked about John L. Sullivan months and months ago about this yeah. great bare knuckle boxer in a bar fight, uh, when we did the bar fight episode. And I remember reading, not about necessarily him, but there was a boxing fight and it lasted around was until you drop someone to their knee um, or they took a break or basically they asked to take a break. That's how a round was determined. And so if you dropped them, you'd stop the fight, let them get up, shake it off and they go, all right, let's go again. And so that's what it sounds like with Jack Johnson is like the rounds lasted until someone got dropped. And then, yeah, I, I think the rules that they, you're refer- I think those are actually referred to as the queen's rules. And that, that was what was used okay. for a long time. Some, yeah. some old stuff the queen came up with, apparently. <laughs> she loved it. She was a big <laughs> fan of bare knuckle boxing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And no uh, crying. <laughs> <laughs> Your queen impression is spot on. Yeah, it far. is. Yeah. It really is. It's <laughs> very Monty Python. Yeah. Would that have been uh, Queen Victoria? Probably. Yeah. 
Because like John L. Sullivan was in the late 1800s, so that would have been yeah, shortly after. Yeah, that would have been. Um, but like you said, Jeff, and what's interesting is how long did he reign from 1908 till 1915? Uh, 1915, that's right, seven years. I mean, that's unbelievable. And like he kept boxing until his 60s. Like, and I'm sure he boxed, boxed well into his 60s. And, and it's just, it's just another one of those things that, and like we mentioned last week when we were talking about how much more contribution could George Washington Carver have brought had he not been held back. And the same thing with Jack Johnson is, is he could have been the champ in 1903 or 1904, but they wouldn't let black boxers box with white boxers because they considered them inferior. Um, but had they integrated earlier, I mean, his reign could have been that much longer and, 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 and boxing as a sport probably would have been even more enjoyable to watch um, because you would have had the best boxers irrespective of race um, or skin color. Well, and Jeffries uh, said after the fight, he said, and this is a quote, he said, I could never have whipped Johnson at my best. I couldn't have hit him. No, I couldn't have reached him in a thousand years. That was his quote after the fight. So, um, you know, like, like when I'm going back over that, that uh, timeline leading up to Johnson having the title, you get to the point where one of those guys had fought Johnson earlier that year, but won in a decision. And, and I just can't imagine at that point a uh, black guy getting a fair shake against a white guy in a decision. I, I, I don't know. I, that's pure speculation, sure. but it, it seems like that's probably the case. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think especially in boxing is as one star is ascending, another one is descending and if Johnson's no longer in his prime um while Jack Johnson is or right or Jim Jeffries I should say um right while Johnson is I mean that's it's like man how much better would that have been if they had been allowed to box a couple years earlier like yeah yeah because unless you're George Foreman you can't box that well after 40 I I think I think George Foreman won the heavyweight title in his 60s does that ring a bell to anybody I don't know if it was in his 60s but he won it I thought he was in his 40s when he won it again. Well, no, when he first, yeah, yeah. When you guys with the internet at your fingertips, look that up. That would be interesting. But this reminds me of this whole thing, reminds me of the man, I would love to see Mayweather and Pacquiao fight. And by the time they did, Pacquiao was no longer the Pacquiao that we knew. And like, it's like, yeah, they fought and they both made a truckload of money, but it wasn't the the must see event that, that you were hoping it was. Yeah, and that's that kind of conversation that the. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Cam. So, according to history.com, in 1994, 45 year old George Foreman became boxing's oldest heavyweight champion, beating a 26 year old Michael Moore. Wow. That's I like the story that's better funny. when he's 60. Is, can we look that up and yeah, can we just and change that? that? Yeah, that, that'd be great. <laughs> Yeah, we'll Thank we'll you. make a couple tweaks. Yeah, but I mean, forty-five. That's pretty good. I mean, I'm I'm doing a flip at thirty-seven. I'm pretty proud of that. But that's that's not going to win any world championships. Still got time. <laughs> Still got time. That's right. Start training for the next eight years. Yeah, that's an interesting story and and a name obviously that I had heard, but I never knew anything about. 
Jack Johnson. So it's a good one for sure. Thank you. Um, Who's next? Eric, why don't you share yours? Sure. <clears throat> um, so I went with uh, Jackie Robinson, 42. Um, kind of that, that first man to break the color line in Major League Baseball and, and I think kind of major sports. Um, not someone that I knew a ton about. And so I did want to take this aside. Um, the thing that I've enjoyed about doing this podcast is the kind of the necessity to continue learning. Like there's a lot of things we've discussed that are not um, things I'm an expert on. So it's been a lot of fun to say, oh, I need to go read about and learn about the Mongols so that we can talk about it. So Jackie Robinson would, would fit under that. Like we obviously know some of the basics, right? He, he played in the Negro leagues. He broke into the major leagues and was that first African-American to play in the major league baseball. Um, but there's a lot of little nuances there that we miss. So, you know, he was born in 1919 in Georgia, moved to Pasadena. Um, he attended John Muir high school where he got involved in athletics. His older brothers were both very athletic. One had been in the 1936 Olympics. Um, he went to Pasadena junior college and then attended UCLA, uh, in 1939, he played football. Well, sorry. He lettered in football, baseball, basketball, and track at UCLA. Wow. Like, I don't, I don't think NCAA allows people to play more than one sport. <laughs> Like you can't play football and chess. You have to pick one or the other, right? It's like, you don't get to do that. So he lettered in four sports. Um, and he lettered in four sports, but he also played tennis. So he was kind of an all-around athlete. Um, he ended up getting drafted in 1942 into the U.S. Army. Uh, where then he applied to officer candidate school. There was a delay, probably because they were black. He and some other uh, friends of his were black. They finally got into officer candidate school so they could be officers. Um, <clears throat> and he got transferred to Fort Hood. He was part of a, uh, a tank regiment called the Black Panthers. And while he was there, uh, he was court-martialed uh, in August 1944. So he never got to see combat. Uh, he was court-martialed uh, because he didn't move to the back of the bus, right? A bus driver said, you got to move to the back. Mm. Um, but the issue was these buses that the uh, army had chartered were, because they were officers, were non-segregated buses. Mm. So he was right, not just morally, but also technically right to say, you can't move me to the back of the bus. So he ended up being court-martialed they were like yeah we're not gonna follow that he got transferred somebody else then followed up on the court-martial and gave him disciplinary action for like drunkenness and some rude behavior insubordinate behavior that all was just made up in nonsense anyways he goes on to um i forget i think it was uh i want to say sam houston college where he ended up uh, doing some coaching, Samuel Houston College in Austin. He does some coaching there. He like coaches basketball or baseball. He coaches baseball, sorry. Um, and then he gets picked up 
by the Kansas City Monarchs, a Negro League baseball team in 1945. And they're like, you're pretty good. Why don't you join us? He joined them. And it's about this time that Branch Rickey, who's the president and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, has this kind of idea in his head to bring in players from the Negro Leagues into Major League Baseball. And he's got a plan to do this. And so uh, part of his plan was, if we're going to bring somebody in, we can't have them they can't come in and then get upset when they get called names on the field. They can't be weak. They can't be soft, but they also can't respond. They can't be reacting. And so they went through a bunch of names. Satchel page comes up, Josh Gibson comes up some of these other players who were uh, arguably better than Jackie Robinson at baseball. uh, They decided to give a pass because they don't want somebody who's going to react every time somebody throws the n-word out there in the in the middle of a game Mm -hmm. because for branch ricky uh who along with um jackie robinson are devout methodists uh there's a bigger thing at play here branch ricky wants to integrate the game in order to do so he has to actually make it palatable for everyone and so jackie robinson isn't just he isn't the best negro basketball or negro baseball player at the time he is a PR attempt, right? It's, they have to make this work. And so that's part of the agreement when Branch Rickey calls him in. Uh, he's like, you, you have to have guts not to fight, right? You have to have enough guts to just, you gotta be able to take it. You can't be soft and break down, but you can't be so wound up that you're gonna go fight everybody that throws the N-word out there, uh, tells you you go back to the cotton fields. So he has to be a different kind of tough. He has to be able to take it and he has to be able to take it every single day. Um, And Branch Rickey's plan is to get Jackie Robinson to do that and do it well so that they can start to integrate all of baseball. Um, I watched part of my research was watching 42, which starred Chadwick Boseman, um, the late Chadwick Boseman, who we most of us know from black Panther, who did a fantastic job at playing the part of Jackie Robinson but I'll tell you, there's two actors that surpassed him in this film. And that was Harrison Ford playing Branch Rickey, the uh, general manager of the, the Dodgers. And Alan Tudyk, who played Ben Chapman. Uh, ben Chapman is the, uh, is the, the manager for the, the Philadelphia Phillies. And Alan Tudyk has to have the, the toughest job in Hollywood to do this. And I, and I like Alan Tudyk. He was the pirate from Dodgeball, and he's done a bunch of voice acting. Uh, there's a scene where Jackie Robinson goes up to plate. They're in Philadelphia. He's getting up to bat, and Alan Tudyk's character basically just throws a tirade of racial epithets and tell him to go back to the cotton fields. And it, like it lasts for like a minute. How to be an actor and use the N word like 15 times within the, the the span of a minute? And to not walk away feeling like trash for doing that. Um, I don't know. I, I, he's obviously a great actor because he pulled it off. Um, so, you know, Jackie Robinson breaks his color barrier. Um, that happens on April 15th, 1947, which is now Jackie Robinson Day in the major leagues. They all wear 42 for that. Um, he wins rookie of the year that year, which is, you know, 
kind of remarkable for a number of reasons. He breaks a color barrier and wins rookie of the year that year. Uh, and he's also 28 years old as a rookie in the major leagues. Um, that's no small thing. He plays for 10 years. Uh, he's a, uh, you know, first round into the hall of fame in 1962. Uh, but he passed away in 1972 at the age of 53. Um, you know, a man of strong character, obviously, to endure what he did. Uh, he and Branch Rookie kind of went back and forth with this thing. You know, I was, God built me to last, you know, not to, not to, to defeat all my enemies, not to just roll over and take it, uh, not to roll over and take it, but to last, outlast all of this uh, nastiness that would come about. So, um, yeah, and, and I, you know, he wasn't the only African-American player to play in 1947, uh, it was, and I missed the name, uh, Larry Doby also ended up starting that year. And I think it was June or July, uh, in the American league, you know, Satchel page, Josh Gibson are going to show up within a year or two. Uh, even the following year, there's three more black players added to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and then it's just this, you know, the game opens up. And uh, it took kind of a, a big sacrifice by one man to to let that happen. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting. I didn't realize that he was 28, a 28 year old rookie in the big leagues. And, you know, again, um, still accomplished six time all star was a was a one World Series, won an MVP, won a batting championship, two times stolen base leader. I mean, in a 10 year career, that's pretty dang impressive. And no telling had he, had he broken in at 24 or 23 or 22, obviously world war two was going on. So that, that changed things for, for everybody, but I didn't realize any of his military service was a thing. That's interesting. His, uh, his number has been retired by every team, correct? correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Every team. And I think that was since 2004 is when they officially did that. It may have been earlier, may have been 1997. 2004, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, Cameron, you talked his military service, how many African-American men uh, served in the army in World War II in a segregated army and then came back to the United States. And suddenly, while they were segregated, it was still, there was this uh, kind of meritocracy in the army, right? Like, if you have value, if you have something to add, that's how people will judge you. If you can do your job well, that's how people will judge you. And then they come back to the United States in 1945 and 46, and things are not quite that way anymore, or not, not quite that way out in, um, you know, everyday life. And so I think it, you know, it's a slow burn, I think, until the 1960s for the civil rights movement to come out of it. But um, to go from your country needs you and we need you to serve and give what you can and then come back and those things, promises have not materialized. Um, that's going to get people moving. So. Hey, I'm curious, Eric, you, you said that they were, you know, they, they obviously had the, just the right person in mind to break the color barrier. Do you know what it was about Jackie Robinson that made so, Branch Rickey think that he was the right guy to, to, to do 
what, what they wanted, check all those boxes. Well, it sounds like other names came up of, of players who were better than him at baseball, but they were also right. very combative. They were brash. He didn't want, um, you know, Ben Chapman of the Phillies to yell something to the guy at the plate and the guy at the plate turn around and go fight. Because then in the newspaper, it says, well, look, Negro baseball player starts fight. And that narrative can turn and suddenly it's a good, see, see how good it was. We didn't let them play in the major leagues. They just, all they want to do is fight. They're not, you know, they're not as, I don't know, you want civilized or savage, all that kind of nonsense. So you had to have somebody in Brain Tricky's mind who could endure all that hatred um, just to prove every, to everyone, listen, I'm here to play baseball and I can do it as well as anyone else. And uh, I'm not going to result to resort to violence or name calling. Um, I'm so, going to so take he that was higher clearly ground. known. He was clearly known to be a, a level-headed guy. I guess that was. Yeah, that he was, he was level-headed, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't take crap off nobody either. Like it wasn't like he just rolled over. There, there was that balance, right? You can have somebody who rolls over, but they're too soft to play at a high level of baseball, right? right? But it, it it almost sounds cliche, but he really had to let his game do the talking for him. Yeah. And, and to not right. respond, right? And there, there's scenes, I, I think 42 does a good job. Um, he let the team rally around him and the team started to do that defending him when somebody called him out. You know, the team would, someone would step out, go talk to the other team, tell them to shut their mouths and tell them to, you know, take a hike mm -hmm. or somebody else would come out and they'd be booing him and they'd put their arm around and be like, hey, you know, we're just here to play baseball, you know? Uh, I think one of the great lines from the film is he says, you know, maybe someday we'll all wear 42 and they won't be able to tell any of us apart. Mm. You know, and it's like, because, you know, we see the numbers and they, they mean something, but he's saying maybe there's a point at which we don't look at this one physical characteristic. So, yeah, I mean, it took a, a, a almost very specific characteristic in a baseball player to manage to play baseball at a high level and to not react. If I went into any arena and I yelled anything that was yelled at Jackie Robinson, there's not a, there's not a player regardless of, of race or color or anything in any major league sport that wouldn't jump off the court and start throwing punches for some of the stuff that Jackie Robinson endured and nobody would blame them and nobody should like that's. Well, it's interesting with, with baseball today is of the American sports, it's, I would think it's the most diverse sport in America now. I mean, it's not just black Americans and white Americans, but there's uh, people all over from South and Central America. And then Asia, I mean, in Asia and Japan, specifically in Korea, Caribbean, and like, Dominican, yeah. it's, it's a, it's become a, a world sport in that regard. And just yeah. to think that, it wasn't until 1947 that they allowed the first black person to play. And, and since then it's, it's kind of exploded. I mean that, you know, other sports obviously have minorities in them, but not quite in the proportion and in the scope. Uh, I'd say the only has. thing that rivals it would be as far as team sports would be soccer. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the American uh, sports, <laughs> not, not, not the European sports, Eric. I said real sports. No. Okay. 
right. Hey, so what what year was it that he broke the color barrier? Was it 1942? 47. 47. 47. What year did the Dodgers move to L.A.? Uh, six. Ugh. I think it was 59. Dodger Stadium was built in 61. It opened in 62. And I think they came out in 59, if I'm not mistaken. All right. And he retired in uh, 56. Uh, 57 was their last year in Brooklyn. Yeah. And man, just like Cameron said, just imagine it if he'd been able to play earlier. I mean, Babe Ruth, I think, was a rookie when he was 19. Imagine if Jackie Robinson could have had that same mm -hmm. ability, how many records he would have smashed. As far as baseball, how many, how many rookies play in the major leagues that early? There aren't many. Like almost everyone spends. Oh yeah. It's in, almost in the lower of. divisions. Even a number one overall pick will have to go through rookie ball and, you know, they'll maybe start in double a, but you know, at least a season or two um, down in the minors before they're moving up. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's even more impressive is, you know, he, he went straight from the Negro Leagues to opening day starter for the for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's that's a big deal, too. But even I, his his rise there, he only spent one year in the, the Negro Leagues before he went to the International Leagues uh, with the Montreal Royals. And then he went to the Brooklyn Dodgers. But before that, I mean, he had played however many, however many sports as a manager of this this uh, college team he stepped in and, and played when they needed players too, you know? So it wasn't like this guy was playing club from age nine through 18 mm -hmm. and then, you know, playing high school ball. It was, he just kind of was good. He was a great athlete and just made his way in the sport. Yeah. Jake and I always joke about this, you know, the, the players of old, um, you know, they, they had to get to their job pouring concrete after the game you know they didn't specialize and get with their nutritionist after the game and then go see their personal strength coach for mm -hmm. you know this and that and breaking down film it was just you roll out the ball and, and you play and there's the, something the green bay acme meat packers actually had a job yeah yeah they did <laughs> <laughs> And all of those Super Bowls from, you know, back in, back in the day, I mean, they, they count for four Super Bowls and, and now, nowadays. That's why, times, they, right, that's why they played on. How many Sunday. professional championships did you work, win on your part-time job? Huh? Huh? <laughs> Who said anything about part-time? Yeah. Pretty sure they were full-time. Yeah. There's no way. No, you don't do full-time for the job you're not getting paid for. You do full-time for the concrete work. That's, no, that, that's what I was saying. It's full-time yeah. job. Yeah. The sport was kind of a hobby. Let's not take away from Jackie Robinson just so I can gripe about the Green Bay Packers and their glory years. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I set up. Not, I set but the, the, the point stands is that he was, he was just a tremendous athlete. Yeah. And I think that's what stands. And I think, man, whether this year or, or even back then in the 40s, it's like, man, I wish, wish he would have had more of a chance to show how incredible of an athlete he was. I mean, mm -hmm. We've alluded to it. He he was a great player, and if you even if you just had a few more years, like you said, Cameron, that's how much more great could he have been? But you know, it, it's interesting also that I mean, there were clearly a lot of great baseball players in the Negro leagues that could have made that jump immediately, but sure. he was just the right guy. And I, I mean, 
I, I think they were spot on and what they needed. You're right. If, if he's the wrong guy and, it, and it doesn't go well, I mean, how far back does that set the movement? How far back does that set everything? I mean, sure. it's two years is another 10 years. I mean, he's a uh, man. There, there were a lot of great athletes in the Negro leagues, but he was, he was the right man for, for what they needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, you know, that, that discussion of, of personalities and, and, you know, that meant mold between, Hey, is he a great player? Is he a great personality? Is he both? Um, I think kind of there's a good lead in for my pick, which was Bill Russell. Um, so, you know, as, as the basketball guy and as the, you know, lifelong Laker fan, I, I cringed when I made this pick, but, um, you know, I, I recently read a, a book called the book of basketball and, um, it, it it talks about, it's written by a Celtics fan, uh, Bill Simmons, and it talks about Bill Russell almost as a, you know, almost deifies him. I mean, just talks about how great he is and this and that, and, you know, the guy admits, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a homer here, but you know, you guys know a lot of the stats. This, this is a guy that played in the fifties and sixties for the most part, um, was a 6'10", 220 pound center. And He's one of the few guys, maybe the only guy outside of Will Chamberlain from that era that would have been able to compete in today's NBA. Athletically, um, skills-wise, he wasn't just a foot taller than everybody else and reached every, over everybody for, for his buckets. I mean, he was... Must be nice, right? Yeah, I, I don't know anything <laughs> about what that feels like, but, you know, <laughs> he he's, he's one of the top five defensive players of all time for sure he won 11 nba championships he won eight consecutive nba championships which is just mind-blowing um you know he's second in all time in rebounds he, all the stats aside he's that he's the best winner in in team sports in in american history um you know and that was a, at a time where too he didn't he didn't break the color barrier in basketball but he was the single most famous, well-known basketball player for the most well-known team in that area. Um, and he had a really complicated um, relationship with the fans and his, his legacy. As great as he is, you know, pretty much anybody with a brain calls him a top five of all time player. But I didn't know this. He didn't attend his own Hall of Fame ceremony. He didn't attend his own um retirement ceremony because he was so angry with the city of Boston. Um, he was the type of guy where, you know, kind of the opposite of Jackie Robinson in that way is, you know, if he heard something, if he heard an epithet, if he heard something ugly, he would yell back at them or he would remember that person and not look at them, not sign an autograph, not nothing. So he was very, um, I don't want to say the word, vindictive because of some of the terrible things that was done to him. Um, but he never, he never really forgot that. Um, there's a story that I read um, this morning that he, he was refused service at a restaurant prior to an exhibition game in Kentucky. And he said, oh, I'm leaving and not just leaving the restaurant. He left the city and got on a plane and went back to Boston rather than playing the game the next day. 
um, he made a point of not smiling for photos with somebody that, you know, he suspected, even if it was a suspected slight of, oh, he just thinks I'm a great basketball player and doesn't like me as a man. He wouldn't smile in photos. He wouldn't pander to any of that. Um, so the fans, you know, and, and, and depending on which person and, and which individual, you know, some people were really hurt by that as true fans of his and some people, oh, that just kind of confirms my racist beliefs. So there were, you know, extremes of, you know, how he was treated and, and how he looked at it. But I, I think people really respected him all the more, you know, he's, he's revered nowadays because of sticking to his guns. And, you know, if you do me wrong, I'm going to remember that and I'm not going to play nice or, you know, make you feel about better about something that you did wrong. Um, so the, the NBA, even today, has done a really good job of kind of making amends for that. Uh, they had a, a better ceremony in Boston. Um, it took many, many years after his retirement. I mean, he was in his 80s when they honored him in Boston with officially retiring his, his uh, number six jersey and officially having him be the... Um, you know, reinducted into the Hall of Fame so that he could go and he could speak. And, um, you know, it, it was something that kind of buried the hatchet for a lot of years. And it, it was kind of a, an emotional thing. I looked at it on YouTube and um, it was cool to see that the NBA try to make amends for that and to try to say, hey, we appreciate what you did um, all those years ago. So kind of a kind of a cool story because yeah, Jackie Robinson was great because he was a diplomat and he said the right thing and did the right thing and no knew when to, to fight and make a scene and when not to. Bill Russell wasn't that, but he, he accomplished a lot in his own right, both for, for racial equality and, you know, obviously on the basketball court. Yeah, and, and he stuck to his guns as a man. I mean, I, the, the word that I wrote down when you were when you were talking about that, I wrote down, he's, he's principled. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he wasn't gonna, he, he just wasn't going to do what he knew was, was wrong. I mean, those people are going to treat him that way. He's not going to, he, he's not going to dance, you know? Yeah. yeah and it, it kind of makes him a, a pioneer or trailblazer in a different way. Right. Like if Jackie was the one that broke the color barrier um, with, major league sports, so to speak, that Bill Russell is one that kind of broke the propriety barrier in that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have to behave like Jackie Robinson anymore. I, my game is good enough. My skills are good enough that that's why you need to, I don't know, respect me, but you know, like I don't have to play nice to be allowed to play, I guess there's a, a different way of looking at it. And I think, in a sense, that was a new frontier for a lot of professional black athletes as well. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're so dominant, as you mentioned, it makes your case a whole lot stronger. Um, when when you win eight in a row and eleven total, I mean that's no nobody's sniffing that. I mean, as great as Jordan was, he never got he never got that many. Um, yeah, and, and Jordan never got turned away at a restaurant, if I had to guess. Either. Right. I'm sure he never went to bed hungry because nobody would cook him dinner. 
Yeah. Well, and you and you could say, and we often say this about history, is we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yep. Jordan could be Jordan because of Bill Russell. And Bill right. Russell was Bill Russell because of Jackie Rob. You know, and like mm-hmm. it, it it all builds upon itself here. And it's kind of a theme that we had last week as well as as these scientists um broke down barriers, then the next one could go farther with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think a, another great thing about him is that, you know, he was so respected by his teammates. They said, oh, he was way better than, than what people think. You know, all the numbers and as great as they were, he could have averaged 40 a game. He could have averaged 30 rebounds a game, but his number one joy was seeing his teammates succeed. I mean, more so than even winning, he wanted to see his teammates succeed in that, <clears throat> that shine through in his just the way that he played. He, his favorite thing was blocking a shot and making a good pass and, you know, doing those little things in, in basketball. And yeah, he was just a mean old cuss that loved his buddies and loved his teammates, you know? Yeah. Was Red Auerbach his coach, Cameron? He was. Yeah. All right. And, and speaking of that too, you know, to, to Jake's point there is, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants is Red Auerbach had the, the foresight to say we're gonna we're gonna treat this guy with respect we're not just gonna bring him onto the team by his second season bill russell was the highest played paid celtic which is amazing in those days i mean even as great as he was oftentimes the the black athlete took much much less money so he was the highest paid from the beginning and you know, it was, it was because Red Auerbach kind of pumped him up there and, and vouched for him. So it's a good call. Right on. That's a good rundown, man. I liked it. So, yeah, guys, I, I, I mean, I, those are kind of the big ones that, that jumped out at me, you know, as, as far as the, the athletes, one of my other favorite stories too, was, um, as I was doing research was Jesse Owens, the track and field athlete from, from the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Um, and such a sad story that, that I read about there is he won his four gold medals kind of stifled that victory run that, that Hitler wanted to, to show, he wanted to show that the Aryan race was, you know, superior and he had his great, well-conditioned athletes and everything. And after one of the medal ceremonies, there's, there's stories about Hitler actually coming down and shaking the hand of Jesse Owens and saying, congratulations. When Jesse Owens came back to the United States, they had a, a ticker tape. Is that, am I saying that right? Ticker tape yeah. parade? Yep. They had a ticker tape parade for him in New York City after he returned. And after the parade um, in the Waldorf Hotel was kind of the after party. They wouldn't let him walk through the front doors of the Waldorf Hotel. After, you know, having done all this, a parade in his honor, he had to go around the back door. Um, Hitler congratulated him. But the president of the United States didn't even send him a telegram, didn't call, didn't write, didn't invite him to the White House, nothing. Um, so kind of amazing where the world was at in 1936 for a guy that, you know, was literally the most famous black man alive at that point and didn't get 
the respect that he deserved. Except from so. literally Hitler. Right. Right. <laughs> and and Hitler, you know, they, they said that Hitler kind of went down there, cursory shook his hand and, and said, sorry, said, great job. He didn't do it again, but he was so amazed. He was truly impressed by this phenomenal athlete that even literally Hitler shook his hand and, and you know, he was not treated as well in his own country upon his, his return. So I wanted to get that one in as well when it, when it comes to, to athletes, because he's, he's right up there with, with some of the great ones too. Um, but, but yeah, tell, tell me guys, you know, I, I know that we also have some time for musicians and we're about an hour in right now, but, um, there's, there's a lot of musicians there as well. And I know that, um, Jake, you had one in particular that you wanted to talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd love to go. Um, so my, uh, I didn't pick a specific athlete to focus on, although I think the three we hit were awesome. And, and obviously Jesse Owens, although real quick before, and maybe this will sidetrack my musician one, uh, Tiger Woods, man, like mm. he's incredible. And I know he wasn't the first black golfer, but he is, I mean, he's awesome. Well, he changed the sport. I think he changed yeah. like the way that people watch golf. Well, he wasn't allowed, players. right? Because he was black. He wasn't allowed to play in Augusta, right? They had to yeah. change the rule. Like that's how, that's how, uh, I don't know, backwards or slow moving golf is because they had all these things about decorum right and like and that was in 1996 tiger woods was the first black guy to play at augusta is that true they had to change rules so that he would be allowed to yeah because he qualified for the masters there and there's no way that's true in 1996 check it out that would literally be illegal check it out i i Maybe they've had black people at the club before, but they, he was the first professional black golfer to play yeah. at the masters in Augusta. So like they could be on the course, they could be, you know, in, in some of the rooms, but they didn't have full access to Augusta national until Tiger Woods's career. Yep. If so, that's true, that is shocking. Yeah, it is. And I hold, remember, hold on, hold on. Augusta invited and accepted its first African-American member, television executive Rod Townsend, in 1990. Okay. So, so he wasn't a professional. I, I don't know if that was to he was play. Just a member? Yeah. Okay. And of course, so anyway, uh, they didn't allow women until 2002. So that's a anyway. different month. <laughs> okay <laughs> point being and and not only did tiger woods was he good enough to make augusta change its rules um but it, we, he's second right on the majors list yeah he's one behind uh nick nicholas right right yeah so anyway it, it just it popped in my head as we were talking it's like I, and he's just incredible i mean he was the best player in golf for what was it 12 years like he was he, there was nobody that could sniff him as far as how good he was and and even today even though he's not not winning as much he's still an incredible golfer any so anyway um i don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole with that one but 
just thought I'd bring it up. So with musicians um, specifically, I have one that I remember as a kid seeing him and I don't know why or what it was about him, but it just struck me as he was a fascinating person. And that is uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And I remember seeing, and it might've been when he died because I think he died in like 1993. But um, I remember seeing this news thing about him and, and like he was this trumpet player and the way he played trumpet is his cheeks blew out like, and, and that's not how you're supposed to play trumpet at all. And his horn and the, the bell of his trumpet was bent. And, and like, it, it was just, it was just this like crystal clear image I had of this, this man. And I'm like, who is this guy? And, and so when we had this come up as uh, as one of our topics, I'm like, well, I really want to talk about Dizzy Gillespie. So uh, he was born John Burks Gillespie in 1917. And his dad was a band leader um, who kind of got him into music. He started playing piano at four. Um, and then his dad passed away when he was 10. And um, he taught himself how to play the trumpet and trombone. So part of the reason he played trumpet wrong was because there was nobody there to teach him how to play it right. Um, he eventually started playing professionally for some big bands in 1935. Uh, he played for Cap Calloway's orchestra in 1939. And, and an interesting story is he was fired for his mischievous humor and adventurous approach to soloing. Um, and, and they had a fight, him and Cab had a, a mischievous, yeah. And they had a fight that started as somebody, and here's why it's funny to me, because when I was in seventh grade, I was walking out of band class and someone shot a spitball at me and I turned around and I said something I should not have said back to them. And then they proceeded to hold me up against the locker and we got into a big fight. Um, <laughs> and what happened here, was somebody shot a spitball, Cap Calloway got all upset, and Dizzy ended up stabbing him in the leg. And that's how he got fired from his job. So apparently spitballs and ban are no-no is what I know. Um, or your kindred spirits, I don't know. <laughs> Dizzy and I are kindred spirits. That's possibly it too. Um, he played for uh, Jimmy Dorsey, Ella Fitzgerald, Woody Herman. Uh, he did not serve in World War II, and at his local board meeting, he said, uh, at this stage of my life here in the United States, whose foot has been in my rear? Um, so if you put me out there with a gun in my hand and tell me to shoot at the enemy, I'm liable to create a case of mistaken identity of who I might shoot. Uh, so they marked him uh, 4F. They did not draft him into World War II because <laughs> he made it abundantly clear he did not want to be drafted. Um, yeah, so he, you know, kind of the antithesis of Jackie Robinson, who went to officer candidate school is, is Dizzy's like, what's the United States done for me? Why should I fight for you when, you know, he was born in South Carolina. So obviously the Jim Crow South um, to him, you know, he didn't view the, the, the United States as a, a nation where you just do your duty because you should, you know, he felt like they were I don't know if he actually thought they were the enemy, but he certainly didn't think that they were friends. Um, and so he continued to play. Um, and uh, he's kind of not credited with the invention of, but he's one of the forerunners of uh, what we call bebop music or bop music, which is the first modern jazz style. 
and uh, it's kind of a it's like an evolution of the swing and big band music that they had at the time. And, and that's kind of what they viewed it as is, is swing and, and big band was, you know, there's a set structure and, you know, the simple, this singular harmony and melody that would go throughout and bebop was not that. Um, it was different in that it had a very fast tempo, asymmetrical phrasing, uh, intricate melodies, improv and uh, rhythm sections that expanded the tempo. And, and so basically it took big band and it took swing music and it kind of turned it on its head. Uh, a lot of others were Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell, Earl Hines, um, were all part of that kind of evolution from swing music to jazz. Um, they, uh, and they didn't consider it a revolution uh, from swing. They just said, this is kind of the next step. You know, this is where music's going now. And they, they never, they didn't even call it bop or they didn't call it jazz. They, they, they just called it modern music. That's, they just viewed it as the next thing. Um, and, and so he just kind of had this transformative like uh, effect on music and, and that carried throughout his life. He, he continued to play um, basically until he died, you know, in, in the early nineties. Um, but there's a couple of things about him that are very uniquely him. One are his cheeks. And if you ever see a photo or see videos of him playing, um, the way he plays trumpet is his cheeks blow up and his neck actually blows up and he, he looks like a bullfrog almost. And, uh, and there's a, a condition and it's called laring, laryngeal, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. And it's basically because of this, the way he was playing the trumpet with puffing his cheeks out, it creates an empty sack along his larynx. And so when he blows on the trumpet, it goes, everything inflates. And uh, it's also called glass blowers disease um, because glass blowers, same thing, their cheeks puff out and they have the same, I guess, air sac that, that develops as a result. And then the other thing was his trumpet. Um, in a lot of videos and a lot of pictures of him playing, his trumpet's bent at a 45 degree angle. And this actually happened in 1953 at a birthday party for his wife. Um, some dancers fell and they knocked his trumpet off its stand and knocked it and bent it at a 45 degree angle. So he picked it up and played it. And he liked the sound so much that he's like, well, let's, let's roll with that. And he made, he had a special order trumpet designed like that. Um, and that became his trumpet from 1953 and, until he died. You know, that, that was his thing um, from there on out. Um, and he had a couple of songs that uh, his most famous songs are Night in Tunisia, I, Oop Bop Shabam, and then Salt Peanut. And um, you can kind of get that jazz style and you can see what they're talking about with like the improv and the soloing and the really fast tempo of music and and uh, in those three songs. So yeah, that's Dizzy. Uh, I just I just wanted to bring out because I remember him as a kid and and I know there's a lot of great black musicians, especially in the 20th century, um, that we can go over. But he's one that personally to me was stuck out and he was unique in in my I guess childhood. And so I just wanted to give him. I guess the credit I think he's due. And and before there was Kanye running for president. Yes. Yes. Dizzy also wanted to run and rename yes, the White did. House the Blues House. Yep. With uh 
<laughs> like, and he had a whole cabinet. Oh yeah, Duke like, Ellington is Secretary yeah. of State. Yes. Miles Davis is director of the CIA. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Ray Charles is librarian of Congress. Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, Thelonious Monk as traveling ambassador. Malcolm X is attorney general. Don't see that going sideways for anyone. Uh, I'm just saying. And this was in this was in '64, I think. Right. Yeah. 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 So, anyway. Yeah, he was something else. Uh, Jake, I'm curious the uh, the the bent trumpet thing. Did that catch on with other musicians, or was that no, his signature thing? That was his thing, and so <laughs> no, like, they, he didn't sell any of those. Just yeah, the one. that was his thing, um, and that's what I, I think is so cool about him is is that he had not one but two signatures. One, the big old when he when he played, his cheeks blew up like a bullfrog, and then the bent trumpet, and it's like. And I think that just kind of everything about his career is that, you know, he took what was right. Like, and he added his own spin to it and he made it his own. Um, he took swing music and he made it into jazz. He took the trumpet and he bent it at a 45 degree angle and, and, you know, and, and he played it wrong, you know, wrong, not, not the way you're supposed to play it, but man, it was awesome. And I, th I think that's just really kind of a, a cool thing about him and i guess i would say about black music in general is that you know the spirituals are you know they were given hymns and they made spirituals they were given swing and they made jazz um and a lot of that was through circumstance it was that they didn't have the classical training that a white musician would have and so they said well i like this thing but i want to make it my own and um i just think that's a a a unique thing about the development of music in America. But I wish I knew enough about music to understand like the, the, the nuances of how music changes from year to year and how different threads end up in different patterns. Right. So you have swing, um, which is this 1940s style of music that's, you know, played by big bands. And then that's, not co-opted or usurped, but just taken and set aside differently and changed slightly to, to go down this other road. Right. And so all music does that. And I just kind of wish I understood music enough to really walk through all of these stages of musical development mm -hmm. and evolution over the 20th century is probably the most fascinating mm -hmm. time of musical uh, development, but yeah, that's a hole in my education is the whole musical training thing. I have such an appreciation for for people that, you know, have an ear or can hear a piece of music and be able to explain it and break it down and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, when I when I hear people that know a little bit about music to talk about it, it's cool to to hear it, hear them talk about it, because, um, you know, there there's a lot of intricacies that most of us miss um and and it's cool when somebody like that is a, a torch carrier like dizzy gillespie and not just musically but stylistically yeah I, I i agree and i think you know some of these other musicians we have thought of i mean they've all kind of done that in some respect and um you know obviously aretha franklin is is one um and and i think 
you can you can kind of take your pick of any era, especially in the 20th century, and say, how have black musicians impacted this genre, and uh, mm -hmm. or in a sense created this genre of music? Um, black black musicians are credited with the creation of rock and roll, not Elvis Presley, although he's um, the most famous, you know, the king of rock and roll. But um, and then same thing later in the 80s with Michael Jackson, the king of pop, and you know, I, I just think there's, um, I was reading a, a, a thread on Twitter and someone was talking about sea shanties, like from like the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, the 16 and 1700s in the Caribbean and how sea shanties were a development of black music. And, um, you know, cause they use sea shanties to make the work of loading the cargo and unloading the cargo go faster. And, and that's where a lot of those came from. And, uh, and, and they said, black music is American music and American music is black music. And, and not to say that, obviously it's, I think American music is full of world influences all over. Um, but I think it was more of a statement to say the, the development of music in America is interwoven with, with black culture as well. And it's evident everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, when you talk about um, influential black athletes and influential black musicians, I mean, there's, there's almost too many to name, um, you know, you, you, however many you come up with, there's always some that, you know, oh, well, why don't you talk about this? Or why don't we talk about that? So, you know, I would be interested to see you know, some of the people that are listening out there to, to make a comment to say, hey, you know, you forgot about this guy or you forgot about this girl or, um, you know, and there's there's probably several that we could just say, oh, these are Mount Rushmore type people that, you know, just didn't come up in our discussion. Because, again, there's so many of them um, across all, all the genres. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's and it was funny because. I think when you were when we were texting, you're like, well, who who else could we pick? And I was like, I was like, well, we could pick tons of people. Like, and we said like Dr. Dre, NWA, BB um, King. Like, mm -hmm. like there's just the list goes on and on, um, especially with with music and art. And uh, but yeah, I mean, we did the same discussion last week when it was scientists and inventors. Yeah. It's like there's dozens uh, that we could have mentioned, um, but sadly, just time doesn't permit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a good good time to, to wrap it up. Um, once again, thank you everyone for, for tuning in to, to listen to us. Um, encourage you if, you, if you like what you hear, to like it, to comment, to subscribe, to share with your friends, um, and, and to make sure too, if, if you guys are inclined to support us with stickers or um, you know car magnets or anything like that, feel free to reach out to, to any four of us and uh, we will be happy to send them to you. But hey, uh, subscribe watch. We're at 66 YouTube Ooh. subscribers. So uh, when we get to 100, we'll do something ding, special. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. yeah. Special. Last, last time we made a pledge, Eric, uh, we ended up shaving our heads. So <laughs> I'm just saying. I, hey, I bet maybe that's what I've been growing this out for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, my wife would not like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, 
but we're doing it you didn't dance. even ask her that's don't throw your wife under the bus on this no she yeah. she likes to run She's, her fingers through stop, my hair stop, so no. okay okay <laughs> <laughs> so anyways it's we're at 66 show, we want to get to 100 soon and then we'll we'll get to a thousand at some point that's the goal hey jake do you have a sticker magnet happy or handy to show everybody yes maybe no i don't there's a here's a sticker for everybody's viewing you know i was kind of worried because it kind of show I, my Maybe the the font. Perfect. Maybe I need to make it. it looks like Dad Boo History Poo Cast. I disagree. I think it looks fantastic. Here. <laughs> That's how you read that. <laughs> I just the 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 O and the D look a little. Anyways. I was worried they might come out like that, but yes, yeah, definitely. Maybe subscribe. that's why we're only at sixty-six subscribers. <laughs> so, like, they dead? keep searching for the poo cast and not the podcast. Subscribe and like and comment and uh, notification bell and all that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <Hi> everybody. See, <laughs> see you all next week. <laughs>